Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello and welcome to this session at the Sydney Writers' Festival and on ABC Radio National. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we speak, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I'd like to pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging, and to acknowledge any other First Nations people who are here today. My name's Kate Evans, and with Cassie McCullough, I present a weekly books program on Radio National, The Bookshelf. It's all about new fiction, reading and reviewing new releases. But importantly, it's also about reading recommendations, revisiting, rereading. And that's what we're talking about today, rereading. But what does that actually mean? Is it about returning to the familiar or discovering new things in a beloved text? Or perhaps it's worrying away at something elusive, something you think you might have missed. And how often do you need to return to a book to think of it as part of your rereading internal bookshelf, part of your bookshelf's backbone? So if I was in a reading addiction workshop, I'd probably have to say, my name's Kate, and I've read Michael Ondaatje's In the Skin of a Lion and A.S. Byatt's Possession more times than I can count. But I've reread neither in the last year or two. So does that mean I've moved on? Mm, don't think so. <laughs> well, I mentioned questions from the floor, which will happen later. And can I suggest that any questioner begins by telling us the title and author of the book that they most reread before they ask their clear, crisp question, not a statement? <laughs> now, let's meet our readers today, first with a brief hello. Now, Ruth Wilson is with us, a woman with a long and varied career who received her PhD in 2021 at the age of 88. I hope you don't mind people keep Not mentioning that. No. And whose book... <laughs> <laughs> and her book, The Jane Austen Remedy, is a bibliomemoir. Hi, Ruth. Hello, Kate. And Bernadette Brennan is a scholar, critic and literary judge of the Miles Franklin Award, among others, and her books include literary biographies of Brian Castro, Helen Garner, and her latest, Gillian Mears, and that book is called Leaping Into Waterfalls. Bernadette, hello. Hello, very pleased to be here. Now, I know that this discussion is going to take us along all sorts of byways into all sorts of parts of your bookshelf, um, talking about rereading and why and when we do it. But I want to begin by discovering something about your reading lives in which you each offer us up just one book that you reread and tell us why. So, Ruth, can you begin? Well, Kate, it would have to start with Pride and Prejudice, which was the book I read when I was 15 years old. Um, that being said, I really think I was a born rereader. And those of us here who have watched children when they start to read know there are two sorts of children who love books. There are readers and there are rereaders. Now, the readers, when you get to the end of the story, say, like Oliver Twist, more, more. But the rereaders, like me, say, again, again. 
And that's exactly the way I grew up with a father who was a wonderful storyteller. And every time he came to the end of Sinbad, I wanted to hear again about how he threw the old man off his back. Now, rereading then has become part of my life since I read Pride and, Pride and Prejudice. In fact, Pride and Prejudice is a little bit like a milestone in my reading life. There's before Pride and Prejudice and after Pride and Prejudice. And the very first time I gave a talk to the Jane Austen Society, those wonderful hundreds of Sydney re-readers who meet every couple of months, I called it rereading Jane Austen. So rereading re Jane Austen, in fact, involved me in discovering a whole group, first of all, of men of letters who had very shortly after Austen died in the 19th century, they had become perpetual rereaders of Austen. Walter Scott said he'd read her three times. He'd read Pride and Prejudice three times when he realized that his big bow wow style could not compare with her exquisite artistry. Uh, the Prime Minister Disraeli boasted that he had read Pride and Prejudice 17 times. Robert Louis, Louis Stevenson, who wrote Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, claimed, hard to believe, that he'd got down on one knee and proposed to um, Elizabeth Bennet every time that he read, <laughs> every time. But it, it's, you know, Kate, it's not only men, I think, who have loved uh, Jane Austen. Right now, there's a group of women uh, and this is a little anecdote if I have time to tell it. I have a neighbour who uh, is a, a thriving barrister in the legal profession. And she rang me one day and said, if I bring some books around, that I'm, your book that I'm giving for presents, would you mind signing them? So I said, no, that will be fine. And she arrived with 16 books to be signed because she said she was giving them all to female members of the legal profession. And of those 16 who had already been given notice that they were going to receive a copy of the book, four of them already confessed to being absolute yearly perpetual rereaders of Jane Austen. That's 25%. That's, and maybe the legal, women in the legal profession are a very select sample. But then I went on having heard this, to look at an article where a, um, a practicing barrister has looked at re um, referencing literature in legal decisions. And apart from Dickens, who's always referenced for Bleak House, it seems that Jane Austen has been handed down or referred to by people who, judges who are, again, um, lifelong readers of Jane Austen. So I think that rereading is something that means so much to us in terms not only of how we read the book, but of how we read ourselves. Because if we go back and retrace the ways in which we've changed our readings, then we actually see we are evolving human beings. And that's rather wonderful. It is rather wonderful, but the question of rereading for the self is something that I'd like you to reveal a bit more of rather than other people's reading of Jane Austen. So I will keep pushing you on what that means to you, Ruth. But Bernadette Brennan, where would you begin in showing us your own most worn book spines? 
Well, it's a very difficult question because I could go back to my childhood and tell you how many times I read the Silver Brumby series um, and that I continue to think about Thaura and Baringa and those horses. Um, fascinatingly, by Eileen Mitchell, or if someone knows how, is it Elaine Mitchell but, uh, who wrote those books? I read them when I was about seven. Um, I think I then started reading lots of other books, whatever was on the bookshelf, but nothing came close to those horses with their emotions and feelings. I learnt the word roan. There was a roan mare. What, what is roan? Um, those books have stayed with me forever, and I want to go back and reread them, but I haven't. I just don't have time. It's one of those, you know, some people say when they retire, they'll read War and Peace. Well, I, you know, I wouldn't mind going back and reading the Silver Brumby series. Um, but I'm not sure that that tells me much about me or discovering things about myself, except I desperately wanted a horse. Um, but the fascinating thing, thinking about it in light of Ruth's book about what rereading Austen told you about yourself and your life, I was then thinking about it for this panel and thought, what fascinates me now is I don't really remember the female horses. I don't remember the mothers of the horses. I do remember there was always the fight over the, the roan mare or another mare. And that fascinates me and terrifies me now that as a seven-year-old, an eight and nine and 10-year-old, it didn't occur to me to care much about the female horses. So I think if I reread them now, I would have a very different opinion. So is that the book then that you're offering up for us? Oh, there's so many I could offer. No, I'd like to take quite a contrast maybe to the Jane Austen uh, book and say if there was one book that I would offer up, it would be Alexis Wright's Carpentaria. Um, that book for me, like all the books that I like to reread, is a book that I pick up and immediately I'm engaged, but I'm also lost. And I love that. I love reading a book and knowing that I haven't even scratched the surface, I don't know where this is taking me. I understand certain things, but then I read it again and it takes me somewhere else. It's a book that says basically, sit back, behave yourself, take the time I'm gonna make you take, this is the narrator, the narrating voice, and you will discover things in my time and in my space. And it takes you to country, it takes you underneath, uh, the surface, it takes you to the rivers, it takes you to history, it takes you to this polyphonic chorus of voices, and it tells you something very important about the here and now and about deep time and how they're all connected. Um, so if I, if I had one book that I said is the book I would, you know, take to the desert island or read again and again, I'd take Alexis Wright's Carpentaria. So that sounds like an example of a book with such complexity that you need to keep reading it to discover both the book and your own sort of reading sense of it. But Ruth, I want to get back to you and Pride and Prejudice. So recently you embarked on a very deliberate reading and rereading program for, for a purpose, for a very purpose, a personal purpose as well as a literary purpose. Can you explain what you were looking for in this very deliberate practice of rereading? What happened? I think that I, I realised that I'd come to a bit of a crossroads in my life, uh, a little bit later than most people. Most people come to that crossroads maybe in their 40s. I didn't come perhaps till I was in my 60s. And I felt, I think basically I felt although I'd had a wonderful family and all sorts of interesting things in a professional life, I still felt 
unfulfilled, as though there was something I still needed to do, and in some way I needed to understand better who I really was. And it was at that stage that I thought that um, I, I've never been a sports person. My hobby has always been reading. That is the only hobby I have ever had, except perhaps going to the theatre, which is another form of reading, I suppose. So I made the very deliberate decision, acknowledging the fact myself that Jane Austen's novels had played I felt the biggest part in shaping the sort of person I was, that I wanted to go back and relive the experiences. And those experiences, as you explained in your opening, rereading has many faces. There are many different ways of understanding rereading. In one way, I wanted to read them because I was in a, in a period of slight melancholy, maybe you would call it depression, and I wanted to be lifted out of that. And I knew that at any time in my life, rereading any of Jane Austen's books would just give me sheer pleasure. So that was one of the things that I felt I needed to do. But the other I felt was to read them in a way that would broaden my understanding both of myself and of the books as pieces of literature, as works of fiction, because it was uh, by that time some years since I had done any academic study, and I wanted to understand how fiction and the understanding of fiction might have moved since that time. I mentioned the article about the, um, the, the uh, legal decisions that refer back or that recite or that uh, cite some of Austen's books. One of them that was mentioned in the article was a judge who had said that when she looked at Jane Austen's novels, she came to a conclusion that they were worthy of rereading because for a reason that she said was both banal and beautiful. And I thought that was a lovely way of saying it. And her reason was because in those books, you get a rendition of human life that is so close to the reality that it in fact reflects without any didactic way or any didactic mode of writing, it actually shows you the complexity of what it is to be a human being in terms of the relationships you have and in terms of the way that you understand yourself. And if that explains it, I think that explains to you why I went back to the six books. I felt that they had addressed particular moments in my life and that the Jane Austen Pride and Prejudice book was the one that was most appropriate for my adolescence, the time when I needed to see a family that was having fun. I also knew what it was to have bickering parents. I knew what it was to be rather bookish because I didn't feel perhaps as popular and pretty as some of the other girls. So in a way, I was drawn to a character like, uh, like Mary, perhaps, in the beginning, rather than Elizabeth and Jane, who were the beauties of the family. But they were the intricacies of those relationships that made me feel that I'd been taken both to some place else, but a place else that also endorsed that my own experience of living was a valid one and that um, 
that life could change if I had enough opportunities to see how other people went about living. So, I mean, there's so much in that answer about using books as a catalyst, using books as a prism through which to view your own life and the self. And so I'm wondering, Bernadette, as you think about rereading, how much it's about that the sort of personal life or the intellectual life? Because in a way, your first answer was about reading a book very much as a sort of intellectual, if I understand it, a sort of intellectual practice that is looking outwards, both to the world and to Australia. That sort of personal reading and rereading into your own life. Well, to an extent, as I've mentioned to you when you asked me to be on this panel, I felt like a bit of a fraud because I am not like Ruth, someone who goes back and reads the same book every year and there, there isn't something that I need to go back. Um, and I don't search for answers of, for my personal life in books, but I love it when I find them there. And of course, I think probably like most people in the audience will understand when you are reading a book that you didn't realise it is suddenly going to speak to your personal experience at that time, whether you've read it before or not. And yet, having said I felt like a fraud, I've spent my whole adult life rereading for teaching, for writing, for criticism, for uh, research. So I read and read and reread. Um, for me, what I love in a book when I reread is a book that teaches me things about, possibly about understanding, yes, about understanding life and characters and relationships and how um, people exist in the world and how they negotiate their relationships in the world. But I can't say there's something that I am looking for to answer my uh, need. Having said that, when I picked up Deborah Levy's The Cost of Living a few years ago, two years ago, was it, that came out three years, maybe? It blew me away because it, it wasn't speaking to anyone else in the whole world. <laughs> that book was about me and my life, and, and I have read that twice since. And the third time I've read it, it doesn't speak to me as much anymore. So I think that's interesting. So in one sense, of course, there's books that I go back to because they sparked something in me about my own growth or what I'm going to discover. But my real joy of rereading is to find things in the language, to find things that the author put there, to take me to new understandings. And usually in my life, if I'm writing about that, it's to communicate those to other people. And if it's, if the book itself, for instance, say if you're picking up a Brian Castro book, I'm thinking of something like After China. I remember the first time I read that, I just had no idea what to make of it, except that I knew it was beautiful. And and to go back again and again and again and then try and understand what was going on at whatever level I was reaching and then communicate that to other readers so that they get a chance to start that conversation and they read the book and say, oh, okay, yes, I see where you were saying there, but you've obviously not noticed this part. So um, so for me, rereading is about a conversation with myself, with the book, with the author, and then with other readers who want to take that conversation further and ask me to go back and read it again in a different way. And, and that's a really good book for me. And isn't that thrilling when somebody um, reflects back to you on a book that you might have, well, a book that you loved and gives you another way into it, or a book maybe that you weren't so sure of, and they say, what about this? And what about this? And then that gives your rereading something else. 
And, Absolutely. And, and so for me, somebody like um, Michael Ondaatje, mm. it is just the sheer beauty of the sentences. But I'll never forget a friend of mine who just went, oh, Michael Ondaatje, he's too prosy-wosy for me. And, um, and so I've always felt like I'm reading against her version of Michael Ondaatje as too much or too chocolate boxy or too, somebody said it's like eating too much chocolate all at once. And so you're sort of reading and rereading in a different way. That's, that's really interesting. And when you're mentioning that, so I've just written this book on Gillian Mears, and one of the things when you do a biography on a writer is that you read about all the books that that writer was reading, and therefore you go and read all those books that that writer was reading at that time. And Gillian Mears reread the skin, In the Skin of the Lion every year for maybe 20 years. So again, it was the beauty of the prose, but she also saw some release and some kind of meaning for her own life in being able to do a little bit of shape-shifting and being able to move that way. So, and I yeah. want to get back to your professional reading and reading to write biographies in a minute. Um, but Ruth, I'm interested to know sort of a bit more specifically about how it is those six books worked for you as, as rereading. So I wonder if you could tell us about the second book you'd want to add to your list and what specifically you um, either look for or find as you reread mm. number two on the Jane Austen list. And which, which one would that be? Well, number two for me would be Mansfield Park. And I think it was actually the third book that I read. I'd read Emma in between. I'd studied at university. But in the same year, at the end of that same year that I read Emma, I read Mansfield Park. And it, it happened to be a year in which I had to make some quite difficult decisions about friendships, about groups, about where I belonged and where I didn't belong, where to put my trust, where not to put my trust. And for whatever reason, somehow Mansfield Park fell into my hands. And from the moment I became immersed in, the, in that novel and met, on the one hand, Fanny Price, the very problematic heroine who has been called a prig, who no, lots of readers really don't like her. And on the other hand, and it's an interesting novel in that way, in that the hero and the heroine are the less charismatic couple in the novel, and the more charismatic couple are a brother and sister, Henry and Mary Crawford, who are so lively, so lovely. He quotes Shakespeare at the drop of a hat. He says, all England speaks Shakespeare, and she plays the harp like an angel. And they're full of wonderful conversation and wit, whereas Fanny and the man that she loves, her cousin, are rather duller creatures. On the other hand, it seemed to me that it was teaching me a lesson, and I don't want to suggest that I read um, Austen for didactic reasons to tell me what is right and wrong. She never tells you what and right and wrong, right or wrong. She only t shows you what is. And in that book, she shows you that maybe the duller, more boring people, and maybe I like to, to identify with that, maybe they need to have more confidence in where they stand and understand that the, the seduction of the charming Crawfords is something to enjoy for the moment, but not something to savour forever. So that, that was one aspect of Mansfield Park that was very important to me. 
later in my life, and it was actually in this very, very much later, in these twilight years when I was reading Jane Austen much more academically and much more systematically and starting to write, something occurred to me that had never occurred to me before, and that was that the relationship between Fanny and her brother William was in a way a mirror of a relationship that I'd had with my brother when we were very young children. And I thought it resonated. It, at that moment, that I think is the sort of rereading where you start to read a book that you've read maybe a dozen times before, but you start to read it differently, as you say. Have you changed? I don't know. The critic James Wood says, reading is all about serious noticing. He says, for him, I think the serious noticing is what you notice in the text. For me, it's also, it's certainly what you notice in the text and the language is absolutely first and foremost because what is a novel without language? It doesn't start to be anything. But there is a point at which it is really important to start noticing the way you feel when you're reading. And that's what I think I started to do when I started actually to write the thesis, to understand that if I read in a way that was really personal, it became more creative, it became more imaginative, it, it, it amplified, it, it pushed the boundaries of my imagination right out where beyond they had been before. And I'm also curious about how much, when we talk about rereading, we mean beginning at the beginning and ending at the end, or picking up and reading moments as well, because there's so many different ways to reread. But Bernadette, I'd like to go back to that, that question of the way in which you read professionally as, as a scholar. Because you've written a number of literary biographies and studies, you've, you've written about Gillian Mears, you've written about Helen Garner, what does that mean for the way in which you read and reread their work, both when you're writing about it and because you've read so much of the things around it? I mean, you've read their diaries, you've read their letters, you've read what other people have said about them. So what does that context do for your rereading? How long have we got, Kate? <laughs> <laughs> um, Everything changes. Everything's, in one sense, I'd like to use the word fluid, but it's not because it's really quite um, organised. So for me, let's take an example. I'll take an example. Gillian Mears is the grass sister. So I start doing this work on Gillian Mears and I've, I remember having read Foles Bread. I had not read The Mint Lawn, which was considered a, her most significant book for a lot of readers. I had read a lot of her uh, non-fiction books um, so I'd, I'd forgotten that I'd read The Grass Sister and I, I picked it up and started reading it again and thought, oh, I remember loving this book. So I read it again and then I, it's a confusing book to read and so then I read it again and take notes on it and think, okay, now I've, I've got The Grass Sister under my belt and then I'm reading her archive with her diaries and her letters, I'm reading about her life, I'm interviewing people who are all there in this book and at that point I start to think, wow, this book is really far better than anything I thought she had written, precisely because it is breathtakingly close to her life and people in her life, to the extent that I started to get confused. 
is that actually made up or is that actually something I read in that letter or that diary or whatever happened? Um, and at that point, I start to think, I don't even know how you can make this art, and yet it is art. It's absolutely a novel. And I had read it at least three times before I knew about the personal things going on in her life. So I appreciated it as a novel, and then I find out, oh my goodness, this is actually almost word for word the conversations you are having with people in your life. So I'm not even sure if that starts to answer your, your question, but what it does is um, you, you pick a, a writer, you read their work, you think you're versed in their work, you think you've got a handle on it, you think, oh, I can see where this is going, I can do a little bit of my critical analysis, I can do this, yep, it's all fine. Then you go read the writers they were reading, then you put it in context of what's happening in their life, then you read their diaries and talk to people that were around them at the time, and the book just gets juicier and juicier uh, at the same time as gets more and more impressive because you think this writer has somehow take, taken all that information and distilled it and written it in the most beautiful prose that has taken me and all sorts of readers somewhere, even though this has nothing to do with our life. You know, we, we can make it into our life. So in that book, for instance, it's about sisters and boy. Anyone with sisters will understand the the pull of love and desire and jealousy and hatred and, and guilt and shame and all those sorts of things. And so it's a delight, is all I can say, um, being able to study writers and what they're reading and how what they're reading and writing comes back into their own writing. And that always seems to have something also to do with my life at that time, which blows my mind. So I remember when when I was doing something on Garner's first stone, she was 51 when she was writing it. I was 51 when I was writing my uh, piece on it. Things were happening in young women's lives that I knew that were almost identical to what she was writing about. So I was emotionally involved in what was happening in my life and this is going on. I'm reading Gillian Mears and I'm writing about her at the same time that my mother's dying and she's her mother's death was an incredibly important thing for her. So it's just one of these things when you're open to the forces of the word and open to the universe, somehow these synchronicities happen. I'm struck by how generous both of your rereadings are because there's also there can also be that terrible moment when you reread something that you loved and you realise it's not as good as you thought it was or you're reading it in a different way or you're reading it again and suddenly things that make your flesh crawl about sexism or racism or something are sort of there to the fore. So rereading can give you a shock of recognition or it can give you a terrible moment of disappointment. And I realised there are at least two books that are very important to me that I was very, very hesitant to reread in case they didn't come up to scratch. And they both did. And one was Toni Morrison's Beloved and the other was Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. And in both cases, I've only been able to bear to read them twice because each time it was like being put through the ringer again, but they're still rereads. They're still important to me. Um, so, yeah, so rereading, is, it's such an interesting thing to talk about. It's fantastic. Book three, Ruth. Book three. Book three. Before I go to book <laughs> oh, three, please. can I say something else? For, in preparation for today, <clears throat> I read your lovely biography of Jimmy and Mears, and then I reread it. Oh, because, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> excuse me, excuse because me. Because <laughs> I, I couldn't understand 
why someone who didn't really resonate with me in so many ways. I saw, for example, the pictures of those four sisters, and I thought these should have been, I didn't have any sisters, I thought these should have been the four happiest sisters in the world. There were so many things that didn't resonate, but I loved reading the biography, and that's why I had to reread it. And that's when I came to the decision or the conclusion, I don't know whether I'd ever felt this before, that the narrator of a biography is really important. And your enthusiasm, your, your generosity and passion, and your extreme empathy, and you may not agree with this, but it seems to me your extraordinary patience with the- I agree. Perverse <laughs> <laughs> was just amazing, so that in that, I mean, I doubt that I will reread it again, but that one rereading did bring me to a greater understanding of the first reading. And there is a lot of research now to say that the first reading is, in its very nature, different from any subsequent readings. And it and only I scratches the surface. And I should say that Ruth has been a guest on the bookshelf as a reviewer twice. And each time she has read the book that she was reviewing a number of times and was able to reflect on the differences of reading and rereading. And that is an absolute gift to, to us as broadcasters to have somebody able to do that sort of very close reading. Because I guess that's what we're talking about, aren't we? We're talking about close We are talking readings. about close reading. And I think that does suggest that I was brought up in the era of F.R. Leavis, who is anathema to most people these days. I still think he got a lot of things right. And that people who learned to read closely, paying attention, because they knew what a comma was, they knew what the subjunctive was, they knew, they knew those nuances of grammar and syntax and the way language is constructed that have actually been thrown out the, glass, the classroom window, much to my distress, but probably to the delight of many teachers who, haven't, who really have not had a background in studying. But to get back to the question, Kate, of books that, um, I read and reread and then never read again. Well, this is a real come down from everything you've been talking about. It was Jane of Lantern Hill. And that's a book by L.M. Montgomery that I read over and over again as a girl, typical of the L.M. Montgomery books. And then all of a sudden, I had outgrown her. All of a sudden, I didn't realize it then. What those heroines don't have is the complexity, is the ambiguity of the Austen heroines. They are struggling maybe against a nasty grandmother or a nasty friend, or you know, they are dealing with all sorts of, uh, they are dealing with complications in their lives, but they are not complexities. And I think there is a very big difference there, semantically and also maybe ideologically. So Jane of Lantern Hill and the Billabong books, which, I mean, Gillian Mears always reminded me of Nora Billabong the moment I saw the photograph. And those books went, and then gradually, uh, once I'd read Austen, my whole, my whole idea of what was worth reading 
changed in my mind. And I think that was um, a big sort of an intellectual move forward. And that was probably in my late teens. Um, Bernadette, would you like to offer up another book or respond to some of these issues that we've raised? I could probably do both in this way. Um, and I think I'll offer a book in a similar spirit of generosity. I'll go back to sort of the Victorian novels since we're talking about Austen. Um, so if I had one book that I had read and reread and reread and reread, it would be Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Um, but interestingly, it was because I got it so wrong. My year 10 English teacher wrote on my essay for which I did not get the top mark. Um, Bernadette will be very good at English when she stops being an incurable romantic because I just couldn't understand when I was 15 why Tess couldn't marry Angel Clare and why did she have to die? This was, you know, so terrible or whatever. And so I have reread that many, many times to the extent that I'm thinking Angel Clare was a just terrible, weak, I won't swear, but, you know, you know, of course she shouldn't have married him. And then, you know, he goes, well, so it was interesting to see my understanding now of the complexities of Hardy. But I used to read... Hardy often because I'd be traveling and I'm not an e-reader person. I don't like that. And I'm monolingual in my reading. So it would be what bookshops did I find if I was traveling and I was in Europe and they always had Hardy. So, you know, Jude the Obscure and Tess. And so I have m multiple copies of those with multiple reads and sometimes Dickens. Um, in terms of stopping reading, as you were saying, I don't think I've got to that stage. Like you, I too have read Beloved twice um, and I was terrified about going back. I actually have not reread The Colour Purple, which I would like to do. And I look at that and think, I, I hope that stands up. Um, I'm sure it will. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think I've had time yet to stop reading from going on, but largely because I spend most of my time looking at books thinking, I really do need to go back and reread that. So I haven't yet discovered, you know, what's going on there. You have youth on your side. Oh, youth on my <laughs> side. So you've just got to love the relativity <laughs> here. It's just great. I'm feeling pretty young and hip. <laughs> but I also love the way that rereading has led to some extraordinary writing. So the sort of writing that, um, like, you know, post-colonial writing that remakes the oh, classics yes. that have been reread. Yes. And if had Yumna Kassab been here, one of the books she wanted to talk about was Jean Reese's Wide Sargasso Sea. And so the ways in which the sort of hidden stories, um, and particularly the stories about women, the stories about race, the stories about oppression, have been rewritten back into these traditions mm -hmm. as a practice of very active rereading, I think is something to be absolutely applauded. Now, because we started late, unfortunately, we are still going to have to finish at 11 because of the next session. So this might actually be a good time to bring up the lights and give people an opportunity to both offer up a piece of rereading and also to ask a question of our um, fine panellists here. And so that means if you'd like to leap up and come to the, don't be shy, leap up and come to the microphone um, and ask a question. And now here is somebody coming. Good morning. And thank you so much for that. Uh, what a fantastic um, session. Ruth, for you, uh, it's just an anecdote more than a question. Oh, but remember, you have to give us your reread first. Well, it's Paddington Bear, to be fair. <laughs> That's as good as any. That's as good as it gets for me. Um, 
I wanted to tell you a little anecdote. Uh, I've cared for my mother for the last 14 years. And over that time, she's a prolific reader. She's down to one book now, age 99, and it's Pride and Prejudice. Oh, so, ah, thank you. She rereads it on rotation, uh, and I'll be forever grateful to Jane Austen for the comfort that that brings her. Thank you. Lovely anecdote. Thank you. That's, that's lovely. Thank you. Thank you very much for sharing that. That's really powerful. Hello, thank you so much for a wonderful, wonderful um, session. I am a passionate rereader. I actually set myself every Christmas, I reread a childhood favourite, and every year I reread uh, an adult favourite. So this Christmas I reread the Narnia books, or seven of them, and I'm now rereading all of Ian Forster's books. So I reread um, Jane Austen about eight or nine years ago, the whole over, um, and that was a very happy rereading year for me. And um, I must admit, I have reread The Colour Purple probably a dozen times. It's one of my favourites. But my question, short and crisp, I, I, I have one for um, either author, but they're linked. Bernadette, I'd like to ask you first, um, how do you choose which writer that you are going to devote your time and your obsession with? You must dive so deep into that author. You must live with them and dream of them for a very long time. Do they choose you or do you choose them? Oh, great question. Thank you. Um, I do dream of them and they just take over my whole life, really, for a while. Um, I chose Helen Garner because I thought a book needed to be written about her 40 years of work and I knew she had an archive. Um, and... I thought her writing was good enough for me to do something interesting, thinking I wouldn't have to go down the biographical path too much. Um, I wanted to do that all over again. I chose Gillian Mears. The first thing that's important to me, because my interest is in ensuring that Australian readers remember Australian writers in the way that publishing is and books don't stay in, in their life um, as they should. Um, I was interested in women writers and Gillian Mears had died at the age of 51 in 2016 and so she had to be a good enough writer and I had read um, her essay Alive in Anton B in which she talks about having MS and taking off alone in a converted ambulance across Australia and I had met her once and I thought now that is one brave interesting woman I didn't know about her private life I had no idea and Whew, did that take me on a ride? Um, and I didn't know that she had a huge archive. I thought she had a small archive. And I thought, well, that would be good. I can just devote time to that. So in a sense, she chose me. Uh, I read around. I tried looking at different ideas. But this person chose me. Since I've published that book, I've actually been approached by a number of authors to write their biographies. And I'm sort of saying, oh, well, I don't know about that. But... Um, the thing I look for is they have to be a very good writer. They have to have done something that um, makes their work important to a lot of people uh, in some different way, a bit more than just the, their books that have been published, maybe. And, um, and preferably they've got lots of archives and diaries and letters and things that I can delve into. So that's how I sort of choose them, I think. Thank you so Thank much. You. Now, my question for Ruth is, is linked. It's very, very similar. But first I wanted to say, um, after rereading Jane Austen so deeply um, and coming to her with such love, you must have suffered a great sense of grief when your rereading time with her is over. And so I want to know what are you doing to fill the void now? Who are you now rereading? 
and will you write a book about them as well? Well, the most recent books I read were the, two, the books of the two people on the panel with me, but I am reading quite widely. I, I'm not very well read in um, uh, American writing, so I've decided I wanted to... I've, I had read a few um, references to uh, Willa Cather and Carson McCullough, so I've started to read those, and I think I'm now going to embark on a little... American journey, and that means not just reading the novels, but trying to get the cultural discourse that's going on around them. So I think maybe that's where I'll go, but at the same time, there is so much good, there is so much, there's so much good fiction being written in the world today. I, I just don't know how you keep up with it. There are so many, there are so many particularly young women who I think so much want to hold the world to account for the way that it has become, that I find them absolutely brave and fascinating and I want to read them too. But I don't have so many years left. Who <laughs> knows, you're Thank young. Thank you. <laughs> you're young too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank, Thank, Thank you very you. much. And for people who don't know, that was the author Kate Forsyth, also contributing both to reading and rereading by remaking fairy stories and mythology. So there's a sense of a deep rereading in her work as well. Hello, thank you, Kate, Ruth and Bernadette. Um, I'm not a rereader, so that I was really interested to come to this session and that's partly my question. I just want to thank Bernadette for the Gillian Mears biography because it, I felt when I was reading Gillian Mears, no one else was reading her back then and no one's reading her now and I am I've actually written a review for a website to say it has inspired me to reread all her works, so thank you. It really has brought her out of the dusty closet. Thank you. Um, so my question is related to rereading uh, old books that, well, the only three books I've read, reread are Pride and Prejudice, Wuthering Heights, and recently Harriet the Spy. And Harriet the Spy was very disappointing to reread. So I feel I'm scared of rereading, especially childhood favourites that don't go well when you reread them, when you were passionate about them. So my, my thought coming to this and my question is, when there's so much great fiction out there coming at you that you and you've got limited time left in your life, I can't justify rereading. And what's your comment on that? Who would like to answer? So I'll go quickly first because I can answer that quickly and that, that is my story. It's yes. And and even as a judge on a literary award, I do have to reread, you know, the long list. And at the moment I'm rereading the short list for, you know, the mile. So, but that's something you have to do. And as I say, I look at my bookshelf and for this panel, I'm thinking, I want to reread all of those. And I just can't. I just can't do it, so maybe you're. I have a very to... short answer. Wait till you're a little older. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Now, we only have a few minutes left, okay, but we sorry. will do I'll the one more I'll be very, very quick. Um, I just want to say thank you, um, Kat, Ruth and Bernadette. Incredible. Um, my name's Sarah Malik. Um, I, you mentioned uh, mention a title and author you're rereading. I think Jane Eyre, favourite, but obviously you're like, hmm, black ex-wife trapped in the attic, a bit problematic, <laughs> you know, as you as you reread. So it's interesting kind of looking at, you know, rereading and, and having a political consciousness. So that, that's really an interesting thing for me. Um, but going to Austin, Ruth, I guess I wanted to ask you, because I grew up in a kind of traditional Muslim household, so Austin for me was like, 
you know, the drawing rooms and the suitors, it related to me in ways that, you know, it was hard to kind of explain to others. Um, you've kind of lived through some seismic changes in gender roles um, in your own life. I was wondering how you related to Austin heroines in terms of your own experiences as a woman, in terms of gender roles, in terms of, you know, for me, it was kind of chafing against the way the Austin heroines chafed against, you know, a lot of the, the, their place, you know, in society. Like, I wonder if Elizabeth Bennett mm. would even want to get married today. <laughs> you know? um, so I was wondering how you related to Austin in terms of your own kind of understanding of yourself as a woman and in terms of gender roles as well. I hope that makes sense. Well, now that's, that's going to be easy in two minutes. Let's see how you go. <laughs> well, I don't know. My, my immediate response to that is not so much about me as it is about how the, the outpouring of fanfic at the moment is the re... To me, these are the gender changes. These are the re-readings. They're not as well written. The, the language isn't as beautiful. The, the uh, plots are not as well constructed. But they are the very contemporary re-readings of Jane Austen. And she has been re-read in fanfic from almost every perspective. And if you want to see where she can go in terms of where the, the contemporary imagination can take her, much as you might not want to read those books, and I don't want to read a lot of them, I think they tell their own stories. They are something that, that needs to be seen as a corpus of work that has its own academic importance and its own cultural importance. I don't know whether that answers that. Can I just say thanks, Sarah, for the question? Um, and... That is precisely, I think, what we've been talking about, the, the, the feedback, the, the conversation. Because to say, yes, when I'm reading Jane Austen, and that makes sense to me, being raised as a Muslim woman in, in the different houses and, and the, the rooms and whatever, that starts the next conversation, which I think is pretty sensational. It would not have occurred to me that, that Jane Austen and those drawing rooms, whatever, would have had much to say to someone who had a very different cultural upbringing and what you're saying is well that's my lack of understanding to have seen that and yes she's speaking in these different ways and it is always the writing back and the rewriting and the reinterpretation and saying yeah that. and it so can go beyond culture stunning. you know so yeah. it's just incredible what something 200 years ago can keep, can keep going. being relevant in weird yeah. yeah in ways so thank you so much guys thank you. well and thank you thank you for such And thank you for such a reminder of how active reading is and that, of course, we all have our own reading positions, which, you know, which remake the books, which is why sometimes we can return again and again. Unfortunately, we didn't have time to talk about genre fiction, which is something that I reread in between literary fiction, almost as a palate cleanser, but I can pick up crime fiction and fantasy fiction. Some of that, well, crime fiction you sort of have to read from first to last, but fantasy you can just throw yourself into this other world, and I do that all the time. Um, there's nothing like a dragon adventure <laughs> to, you know, when you've read some very, very interior piece of literary fiction. It, it works for me. But I should also say, for those who don't know, that Ruth Wilson's The Jane Austen Remedy is published by Alan and Unwin, and Bernadette Brennan's Leaping into Waterfalls, the enigmatic Gillian Mears, is also published by Alan and Unwin. And so here at the Sydney Writers' Festival and on ABC Radio National, we've been talking reading and rereading, returning to the page with me, Kate Evans, and, as you know, with literary critic Bernadette Brennan and bibliomemoirist Ruth Wilson. Please do thank them. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.